Good morning, brothers. If you haven't done so already, I'd love for you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. And uh, Mr. McCarty, I thank you for that prayer. Um, This man, uh, for 20 years, has been used by God to disciple me in, in ways that he hasn't realized. And again, I was reminded this morning, even as he prayed... Um, what a what a great what a great um, the, the wording of his prayer is a prayer is a prayer that all of us can learn from. Uh, Lord, open the eyes of my heart, uh, knowing that we're going to rely on Him to trust us to us uh, trust the Lord to open the Word for us, um, that I might understand these things. And then I love that He said that we might be transformed into Your image. Um, that's why we're here for the word. We're not just here to, to be, uh, you know, theologians and, and study God's word. We are here for that. We do want to become uh, theologians and study God's word, but we're here to be transformed by it. Not this isn't just a this isn't just a lecture. This just isn't a, a theology class. Um, this is meant to be life changing. So, um, what a great reminder that that's what we pray when we sit in our God's word. So, thank you again, brother, for teaching me like you've done for for twenty years. So Matthew chapter 22, um, what I'm going to do this morning is uh, instead of reading the whole passage, um, I'm going to read the section uh, that, uh, that, that corresponds with the particular point, and we'll walk through it like that. But I want to start this morning, as, I, as I've been thinking about this passage this morning, I was reminded of years and years ago when my daughter was just about three or four years old. And she's my youngest, uh, so I had two sons. And she's about three or four years old, and she comes to me, it was about a, about a few weeks before Easter, and she always wanted to talk. The boys never wanted to talk, right? That's how boys are, but she always wanted to talk. She, she hopped up on, on the kitchen, uh, by the kitchen table, on a chair by the kitchen table. I was working on something, and she said, Daddy, um, what's Easter about? And my heart kind of swelled as a pastor. I'm thinking, you know what, I have done a good job as a dad, because... Clearly, I didn't do maybe so not so good in the first two, but this one, you know, she really wants to engage in spiritual. So I go into this thing using, you know, four-year-old language and saying, well, Easter is about, uh, about that Jesus has died for our sins and he rose again on the third day and I get this and she's just listening and I get done and she looks at me and I'm so proud of this moment, it's so special She's like, yeah, dad, I just want Easter to be about bunnies, okay? <laughs> I'm like, great, um, I ruined that. Even every time I've thought about that, I've thought, you know what, well, that's a th- the comment from a three or four-year-old. I just want Easter to be about bunnies. I want it to be about what I want it to be about. I have often thought, or God has brought to mind, that some, sometimes, many times is my tendency. Whatever God is saying, whatever it means to be the church, whatever it means to be brothers in Christ, whatever it means to be a godly husband or, or a godly friend, whatever it means to, uh, to be a man uh, surrendered to the kingdom, I have this tendency, don't you? I have this tendency to think, well, yeah, but I want it to be about this. Like, Lord, if we could just add this or if we could just remove this or if it could just be like this and if we could just kind of, God, if maybe in your grace you could accommodate me in this particular way, that would, that would be wonderful. If you could make room for me in this particular way. 
Years ago, I heard a sermon, and I think I've shared this with you before, by Tim Keller, during which he said, when speaking about the greatness of God and how um, it has affected all parts of the world, uh, that God, that the, the Christianity has gone out in so many different places and so many different cultures, Tim Keller said this, that makes sense. He said, um, if God is truly God, if he is the creator of the universe, if this kingdom of God is supposed to go into all places, then Tim Keller said this, then, then, then the kingdom of God or God himself both transcends all cultures and offends all cultures. What does he mean by that? He means this, that the kingdom of God is way too big to fit in any particular cultural context. There's no cultural context that goes, oh, it, it all fits here, it all works perfectly here. Certainly, in any cultural context, the kingdom of God, God himself, can work because we, we've seen evidences of that throughout human history. Um, it's one of the things that speaks to the validity of Christianity that it is not just a cultural religion, that it actually has transcended all cultures. However... It also does not have room to accommodate everything in every culture. And that's what accommodation means, right? Making room for, having a, having a place for. As we look at what Jesus is doing here, this is Holy Week, don't forget this, what we're reading here are the events that took place during the last week of Jesus' life. And here in chapter 22, he is in the temple courts and he is being challenged by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, um, by uh, this lawyer who was a Pharisee. And then Jesus is challenging back. All this is taking place as the crowds listen. This is happening in the temple courts. And Jesus at this point is ushering in the kingdom. Uh, he's been ushering it in since he began his ministry. But now it's being very plain. He's getting really open. He's making sure they completely understand because the cross is about to happen. And he wants them to know these things. And in this place, we're going to see this morning the offense of the kingdom or the affront of the kingdom. Um, that the kingdom of God is too big. Uh, for any one culture, and certainly this culture, certainly our culture, and at the same time, it doesn't have room to accommodate certain things we wish, and certainly these Jewish leaders wished it would have accommodated. So let me read, uh, first of all, verses 1 through 14, uh, this parable of the wedding feast. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and his servants to call on those, who, <clears throat> excuse me, and his servants to call on those who were invited to the wedding feast, for they would not, but, sorry, let me start over again. And his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. The first thing that we see here this morning as Jesus talks uh, among the crowds is that the kingdom of God does not accommodate or will not accommodate our autonomy. This is, uh, this is the same kind of parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter uh, 14, but it's different. So it's not, it's not the same, same event. Uh, clearly, and you can see this in other places, Jesus used even the phrase, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself as one of the key commandments. He used this in other places. It doesn't necessarily mean that because it appears in Luke that this is the exact same moment. In fact, we know it's not. So in, he told this parable in similar form, but here it, there's some differences that actually uh, really matter. And you'll notice, or you'll remember if you were here last week, that there were two parables before this that had to do with who is, who is accepted in the kingdom, who's accepted uh, as those who are God's people. And here, Jesus is getting very intense about this. I want us to notice a few things as we think about the kingdom not accommodating our autonomy, our, 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 being our make, making our own choices, saying this is how I want to do it. I want Easter to be about bunnies. <laughs> First of all, notice in verse 2, different than the Luke parable, Jesus here says it's a king who gave a, a wedding feast. And the wedding feast is for his son. This is clearly a reference to God the Father providing a banquet, providing an invitation to come because of his son. And I also want you to notice that uh, in verse 3, it says to those who were invited to the wedding. And let's not lose sight of the fact that, well, if I give an invitation, if I give an invitation to you to come to, uh, you know, a big feast, um, you, are, you are clearly uh, in the right to decide whether or not you want to come just based on whether or not you're available. Ah, oh, that sounds fun. That doesn't sound fun. I'll go. Um, if you're in a kingdom and the king gives an invitation... <laughs> it's, not really, it's not really an opt-out thing, right? It's the king. Now, we don't quite understand that because we've never lived under a king, but they would have understood as they were listening to this, if a king gives invitation, it really is a command. And that's what God is saying here. That's what Jesus is saying. This invitation is not to be rejected. And then I want you to notice um, what the response is Look at verse 5. The response of those who were invited by the king, they paid no attention and went off. They had other things they wanted to do. They had other concerns. They wanted to make the decisions for themselves. The king had invited. It really wasn't a question. (laughs) But they paid no attention. And then even it says they killed the messenger. Now, this is clearly referencing the leaders of Israel who killed the prophets. This is clearly referencing what's going to, about going to happen uh, later that week when they kill Jesus himself. And I want you to notice the response of the king in this parable. As we look at the rest of the verses, verses 7 through 14, we see clearly that it wasn't that God the Father or that the king just overlooked this rejection. 
And he didn't certainly accommodate their desires. Sometimes, and I spoke about this this last Sunday, it's not pleasant, it's not even popular for us to talk about the wrath of God, the holiness of God. A lot of times people feel like, oh, you're just trying to make me feel guilty. Uh, you're, you're not really talking about God's grace. And you need to talk about God's grace. Don't talk about the wrath of God. We're uncomfortable with the wrath of God. But as I said this past Sunday morning, grace is not really amazing unless there's a reason God needed to save us, unless we understand what we're being saved from. The wrath of God is not because God is, is, um, is just easily angered. It's not because, because God actually is not as kind and gracious as we think he is. The wrath of God exists because God is a perfect, holy, completely other who who cannot tolerate in his presence any sin, any sin. And because he is committed to justice, because he's committed to what is right, any sin must be punished. There must be justice for any offense against the king. When God forgives us, when, he, when, when the forgiveness of God is given to us, it's not God looking on us and saying, oh, you know what? I'm going to love you anyways. Let's just, don't worry about that. I'm just going to overlook that. Or, gosh, you tried, you did a good job today. You almost made it. You almost were good enough. And because you tried hard, I'm going to, I'm going to roll with that. That is not the salvation of God. That is not the grace of God. The grace of God is to receive upon Christ himself the wrath that we deserved. So as we see the response of the king here, the response is right when you take the parable and understand it has to do with God the Father. The response of of saying, no, there's, there's, there's no rejection of this invitation and it's okay. And even this, uh, this moment with the wedding feast, uh, at the wedding feast, it says there's this guy that had no wedding garment. It was appropriate when you came to be cleaned up and to wear most likely a white garment. And this guy's not wearing the white garment. And again, we don't want to take parables too far, but basically God is saying, listen, there's an acceptable way to come before me. And we know, or we will know through the cross that the only acceptable way to come before God is to be dressed in his righteousness. That's it. We're either clothed in the righteousness of Christ or we're in trouble, absolutely in trouble. The kingdom is not going to accommodate our autonomy. We do not get to decide how and when we respond to the Lord. Let me say that again. We do not get to decide how and when we respond to the Lord. You'd say, Todd, who would do that? I've met people like that. (laughs) I remember talking to a high school student one time back in... A couple decades ago, we were talking very plainly about um, following Jesus. And he said to me, he said this to me. These, this is exactly how he put it. He said, listen, I, I'm, you know, I'm looking at my dad and some of the other, uh, you know, men in our church. And it seems to me that a lot of them just, uh, you know, during high school and college, they kind of did their, their own thing you know, and had their fun. And then, you know, after college, they got serious about Jesus and then they decided that they were going to really walk with him. And that's what I'm going to do, Todd. 
I'm going to do that. I'm going to have my fun now, and you know, I know, and I know I need to follow God, and when I, I'll, get, I'll get serious then. And in, in, a, in different words, I basically said to him, listen, friend, you do not get to decide how and when you come to Christ. And I plead with you right now, right now to surrender your life completely to Christ. I, uh, I love, I've told you this before, I love World War II history. And there's this new book out um, called The Storm of War by Andrew Roberts. And it's, it's one of the best uh, books I've ever read on uh, World War II and brings up new details that have, that have come to light because things have opened up in, in certain uh, documents that were classified up until now. And it's a fascinating book. But one of the things I'm, I'm always astounded at is how at the very end, um, in the last months of World War II, how the uh, Nazi generals, some of those field marshals, uh, tried to... Um, uh, tried to uh, connect with uh, the allied leaders to negotiate a peace, (laughs) to negotiate a surrender. And they honestly thought after all the damage and all the, 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 the horror that they had unleashed on Europe, all the murders, all the death, all the destruction, they honestly thought that they could negotiate some sort of, hey, you know what? Uh, we know we're going to have to pay a little bit, but let's just kind of, can we get the borders here and you know, please don't come into Berlin. And da, da. Of course, the answer was from the allied leaders, no, there's, it's, we're not negotiating. Complete absolute surrender is the only thing we'll accept. Unconditional surrender is the only thing that's going to be accepted. We're not negotiating a surrender. Unconditional surrender. That's it. That's the only option. And every time I see that, and every time I've read that, I've thought about my relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we're asked. We don't negotiate a surrender to our Lord. We don't negotiate a surrender to our King. It is unconditional surrender. And even as I was studying this week, I thought again, have I surrendered in all areas of my life, unconditionally to Jesus Christ? Am I holding out autonomy in any place in my life from the king? Because I know that the kingdom of God does not accommodate my autonomy. Well, let's move on. So they have these three parables. The the Pharisees understand this is about them. So look what it says in verse 15. We'll pick it up. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Notice that flattery there. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and they went away. Jesus is making it clear that the kingdom of God will not accommodate our politics. 
This is a, this is a political question here. And as the, G, as the Pharisees thought to entangle him, thought to entangle him in the politics of the day, which is, are you going to side with these Roman oppressors? Are you a collaborator with them? Or are you going to be with those who are oppressed? And their intent, the intention was to catch him. Either way, he's in trouble, right? If he says he's with the Romans, they're going to go, ah, the crowds are going to stop following him. If he says he's with the oppressed, he, he's, he's with, with, uh, with the side of, of those who would think uh, we need to have a rebellion like the zealots. Well, then Rome's going to find out about it and he's going to have a problem with them. And he wants to catch him in this politics. Notice their flattery in verses 6 and 17. And then they offer this no-win question. Are you going to support the oppressor? Or are you going to support the rebellion? I love Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer uh, begins with this, um, this ask for uh, a coin after he tells them they're hypocrites. I didn't know this until I was studying it this week, that the denarius... Um, was a coin that the uh, Jewish people abhorred using. They felt it was an affront to their own religion, their own understanding of God. So the only time they would use it is when they had to pay the tax once a year. Rome uh, acquiesced to them or or allowed them to mint um, these copper coins that did not have the image of Caesar on it and did not say Caesar is Lord on it. They hated to hold these coins. They wouldn't trade with these coins. Jesus says, you hypocrites, give me a coin. And you know what? They produced one. You know why? Because they used it. (laughs) He hands them the coin. And basically Jesus' response uh, in this moment is, whose is this? Well, it's Caesar's. Okay, well then, you know what? You give to Caesar what Caesar is Caesar's. And the things of God, you give to God. I'm not choosing politics. I'm not choosing a side. What is God saying? We know this and from other passages like Romans 13, that what God is saying is here, we need to be a good citizen of whatever country we're in as followers of Jesus. And it's always important for us to remember, especially as Americans, because we get all worked up when whoever's in office is not the person we want in office. And all of a sudden we want to declare kind of liberties and rebellion and we're like this is this is fitting with scripture you do understand that when Jesus was saying this they were under the oppression of a tyrant like none we have ever known if there was ever a time for them to not have to pay taxes it seems like that would have been the time and yet God says you know what pay the tax pay the tax now clearly in scripture we're not supposed to follow a leader that demands that we do something that is forbidden in scripture. And we're not supposed to follow a leader that prohibits us from doing something that's required in scripture. There is time for um, following God and that's what comes out in here. The things of God we keep doing even if it costs us our lives. Even if it costs us our lives. We just keep doing it. But at the same time, we are good citizens, even if there's a tyrant. But always knowing that the things of God take priority. Brothers, we live 
in a country and a time where we've, we live in a country where we give the, we were given the privilege for almost our entire lives. Uh, we've been, you know, we weren't, when, at least when we could vote, where we actually get a say in the politics that are over us. That's wonderful. What a gift from God that is. Praise the Lord for that. I love that I get to vote. I love that I get to, to make those, those choices. I really do. And I love that you get that as well. I love that sometimes we can disagree and we can have a civil conversation about it. But, I, but like you, I don't ever want that to be my savior. I don't ever want that to be the determining factor uh, about anything. I don't, I'm not looking for a political party to fulfill my, my walking with Jesus. I'm not looking for a political party to usher in the kingdom of God into um, Memphis, Tennessee, or into my neighborhood, or even to this country. I don't need it. You don't need it. We don't need it. You know where the church is growing like crazy? Like crazy is in places like China and India where it's outlawed to be a Christian. And the church is exploding. God doesn't need that. And as a result of that, we're going to be reminded, it's not going to accommodate our politics. And so the question comes to me, comes to all of us, have we surrendered our politics to Jesus Christ? Well, the Pharisees weren't successful in that moment. They actually, they actually sent their disciples along the, with the Herodians, which is interesting because the disciples and the Herodians don't even get along, but here they are aligned against Jesus. That didn't work very well. So let's move on to verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, he must marry his, uh, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the children for uh, his brother. This is coming from Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, the Leverite marriage law. So that's what they were, they were addressing. Man dies, has no children. His brother must marry the widow and raise up the children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died having no children and left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh, all of them, after all of them, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So here come the liberals. The Pharisees have sent their people as failed. Here come the liberals, the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection, right? They're, they're religious, but they don't believe in anything supernatural, particularly in the resurrection. And so they pose a question to Jesus that's meant to show Jesus how ridiculous it is to actually believe in a resurrection. Like it's just, it's silly. Because if you, if you look at the, the law in, in Deuteronomy 25, these, the Leverite marriage, in order to care for this woman, because you remember an unmarried woman, a widow in that, in that culture was very vulnerable, vulnerable economically, um, vulnerable physically. And so it was just a matter of caring for her to marry her and take care of her, to give her a chance to have uh, kids. That was important to the culture then. So <laughs> they pose this. This guy, has, this guy has seven brothers and 
uh, you know, and, and, and they're each dying and they're each handing off this, this woman, this wife to the next one because they're just following the law. But then they get to heaven and there's seven dudes and there's one wife. So who does she belong to? And their whole point is, Jesus, this is silly. The resurrection is silly. This doesn't make any sense. I love Jesus' answers everywhere in Matthew 22, but my favorite of all is in verse 29. <laughs> First of all, notice the Notice the question in verse 28. The question that they were, Jesus was asked is, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? That's the question. Jesus' answer in verse 29, you are wrong. <laughs> He's not even going to answer the question. He says, you are wrong. Like everything, you're, everything you just said, you're wrong because why? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. He goes on to talk and, and reference Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, when Moses is standing at the burning bush and God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, are you saying that your God, that you say you worship, is the God? When God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying, I'm the God of dead men? Is that your God? <laughs> no, he's the God of the living. So he challenges them even on what Scripture says. And there are other places in Scripture that they would have known. Job says clearly, I will see my Redeemer. I will live to see my Redeemer. Yet I die, I will live to see my Redeemer. All over Scripture, he's saying, you guys don't even know your Bibles. And then you don't even believe that God has the power to raise from the dead. You don't understand the power of God. Your God is simple and weak. If you don't think your God can raise from the dead and you don't think, you're, you're, you think your God is a God of the dead, here Jesus is saying the kingdom of God does not accommodate our unbelief. It doesn't have room for it. God doesn't just give grace there. I remember years ago, some of you know because he used to teach here. Years ago, there's a pastor here, Chuck Jacob. He's now in North Carolina. He and I were chatting even this week. Chuck, as you guys remember, is a phenomenal teacher. Absolutely phenomenal teacher. He was a pastor here for a long time. And Sandy often would get Chuck to be a sub in Amen because he's such a good, such a good teacher. Uh, I was at a conference years ago, and Chuck Jacob was cheap teaching on, on sanctification, on how we grow in our relationship with Christ. As, as Pat McCarty said, how we're transformed into the image of Christ. And at one point, he was talking about our, our, messy, our messy unbelief uh, or our messy belief. And he said, it was a room like this, and he said, every single one of you in here has a personal heresy. And uh, this, is, this just shows you my arrogance. Um, I thought, gosh, that's a, this is great teaching by Chuck. That's true. Everybody in here does. And then Chuck, I, he, I was like Chuck could read my mind. Chuck looked right at me and goes, what's yours? I'm like, oh yeah, me too. <laughs> Me too. I have discovered, haven't you? Haven't you discovered over the years as you've grown in Christ? You've stumbled across, oh, you know what? I was holding to a belief about God or about kingdom or about sin or about grace or about forgiveness that isn't exactly right. And you know what? I need to conform my life to the scriptures. We talk about the Reformation. We talk about being reformed believers. Don't lose sight of that word, reform. I'm reminded of, of Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Lord, don't let me be conformed 
to the pattern of this world, but let me be transformed. Being reformed means I need to get reformed. Because why? One, because I get out of form. (laughs) My tendency is towards personal heresies. Towards, I, I, I don't like that about following Jesus, but I do like this. That's my tendency. What, what, is, what am I reformed to? I'm reformed to God's word. That's why I loved, again, Pat McCarty's prayer. That as we sit here this morning, we just don't go, wow, that's some good stuff. But that we look and go, mm, I, need to, I need to reform my life to what I studied this morning. I need to think about that. Because the kingdom of God is not going to accommodate my unbelief, my, my laxity in this area. And I'm always thinking to myself, where is God's word showing me, Todd, you're wrong? <laughs> and you're like, well, that's not grace. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is grace. Some of you may notice if you were close to me this morning, we were talking to each other that I've got, you know, little splotches on my face today. That's because on Tuesday afternoon, I went and saw the dermatologist, right? (laughs) And though she is a very sweet woman, she just said, hey, you got some precancerous spots, so I'm going to go get the little nitro, you know, the the freezing stuff. (laughs) And you know what? I said, thank you. She was pointing out what was wrong with my face. (laughs) And then she told me, and I'm going to have to do some, you know, little minor they always call it a procedure, you know, and then it, they, they basically burn your face. <laughs> and it's a, and it's, a, it's a procedure. I actually had, some of you know, a year ago, found out I had a little melanoma in situ on my face. That w- I can burn that one. I had to go to plastic surgeon, and again, they called it a procedure. I'm like, you're, you're cutting half my face off. This is, let's just call it a surgery, <laughs> you know. And they cut it out and they had to sew the, you know, sew the skin back together. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful. That's a blessing. And when the Lord through his word does surgery on my life, it's a blessing. When the Lord through his word says, Todd, you got a cancer here and you need to cut it out. That's a blessing. That's grace. That's mercy. Yes, Lord, cut those things out. Yes, Lord, deal with those things, please. I don't, Tara is her name, my dermatologist. Tara, I don't, I don't want to keep this stuff on my face and have it turn into cancer. So let's go ahead and deal with it right now. She said, are you okay with freezing right now? Yeah, go ahead, do it. She's like, well, aren't you your pastor? You're going to speak. I said, well, do it. <laughs> just, let's just take care of it. I want, I want, to, I want to deal with it. Brothers, The kingdom of God does not accommodate our unbelief. And the question comes to us, are we again surrendering our whole lives, every corner of our lives to the king? Every corner. Well, let's keep reading. The Sadducees weren't very successful. So what happens next in verse 34? Still in the temple courts, still challenging Jesus. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. In other words, this thing's not working. We sent the disciples, we sent our, our disciples, we sent the Herodians, they failed. The Sadducees, we watched them, they failed. And the Pharisees like, we better do it ourselves. <laughs> we better go after them. So Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, verse 35, and one of them, Pharisee, a lawyer, 
We'll send our best guy, send a lawyer. Asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the Pharisees were going to handle this themselves. They brought up a debate that was common among the Pharisees. And they wanted Jesus to weigh in on the debate. And the debate was, which is the hardest and most important commandment? Why did the Pharisees have this debate? They were constantly having this debate. Which, which commandment was harder? You know, and which one was more important? Why were they doing that? To justify themselves. These guys love to say, we do the hardest stuff. We're the most obedient. We're the most pious. So we've thought about it. We debate what's the hardest commandment. We debate which is the most important commandment. We fulfill those commandments. You might remember that one of my favorite um, goofy things the Pharisees did is they, is they added pieces to the, to the law of God. So they took the Sabbath and they took it way beyond what God intended by the Sabbath. And they determined that there was only a certain amount of steps that you could walk a day and still keep the Sabbath. So they would intentionally go walking towards a place that they knew they couldn't complete on the Sabbath, right? And they would get to the last step and then they would stand there until nightfall to let everybody know how pious they were, right? Showing them, look it, I'm not going to come. I know my house is right there, but you know, it's the Sabbath. So I'm going to stand here and wait. That's why they were doing it. That's what this debate was all about was to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you. Jesus' answer here references two places. One, the, the, the Shema that, that, that they would have known because they repeated it. These Pharisees repeated it twice a day. From Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, and mind. He said, that's the greatest commandment. And then he says, and there's another like it. And there he refers to Leviticus 19, verse 18. He said, you shall love the neighbor of yourself, as yourself. These, here's the greatest commandment. Here's the commandment that needs to be right with it. And then here's the part that actually is the key to this whole thing. It's actually there in verse 40. Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus said, I'm not abolishing, I'm not crushing all the law and the prophets just into those two things. Because sometimes as Christians, we make that mistake. Oh, Jesus just said, I got to love him and I got to love people. So I'm just going to do the loving thing, whatever the loving thing is. I don't need to worry about all that other stuff. Oh, you want me to, to uh, you know, keep the Lord's day holy? Okay, yeah, I'm just going to love God and love his, you know, love his people. You know, I, all this, you know, I'm supposed to figure out how to care for the poor. Yeah, you know, I mean, if they're in my way if, and I see them, I'm going to love them because I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to just, I'm just going to love God, love my neighbor. That's it. That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says that all that is in scripture depend upon those two things so that those become the filter through which we see everything else. But he wasn't abolishing all the other things. He came to fulfill all those things for us. Jesus was saying, listen, all of scripture matters. Don't just, don't just drop it into this. Don't just make it about this. They're all important, but they all depend on love of God and love of neighbor. Some of you may have read the book that Tim Keller wrote years ago called Respectable Sins. It's a great title, Respectable Sins. If you haven't read it, here's what it's about. 
Tim Keller goes ahead and addresses the sins that we as American Christians tend to think are kind of respectable. You know, like clearly we think, you know, any kind of uh, certain sexual sins, we're like, well, that's not, that's terrible. Don't do that. But we can gossip a little. That's not too bad. We can complain a little. We can, uh, and he, he names some others. And he just, and, and he goes through and he just points out, listen, we, <laughs> his whole point of the book is there are no respectable sins. These are sins before God. You got you to deal with these things. Why do we even have sins that we would kind of think, wow, these sins are, are kind of okay, right? And these, but these are really bad. Why do we do that? To self-justify. We are all, like, all of us in here, me too, want to find a way in which the way I do things kind of is a little bit better before God than you. Why? Not because I'm trying to get better than you, but because I just want to say, well, I'm not, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. <laughs> and anytime, you know, it's kind of the, the thing with Chuck Jacobs saying personal heresy and Todd looking around the room going, yeah, they do. Boy, they really need to hear this. Oh, Todd, you arrogant Son of a gun. <laughs> what is yours? What am, I, what am I doing in that moment? I'm justifying. Oh, I know. I know I need God's grace. I know I'm sinful before him. I know that. But at least I'm not as bad as that guy. No. What does Paul say? I'm the chief of sinners. And he meant it. He meant it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul wrote, of whom I am the chief. Am I, in any place in my life, am I justifying myself before the king? Or, again, absolute surrender. Absolute surrender. Lord, I know I do that over there, but you know, it's not that. No, absolute surrender. Absolute surrender. The kingdom of God does not accommodate our self-justification. Lastly, reading verse 41 through 46. So this hasn't worked. And this thing changes a little bit because you know what? They're, they've run out of questions. But Jesus now has a question for them. <laughs> I love this. Verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, speechless, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? That is the Messiah. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David, because that's what it would say in the Old Testament. The Messiah would be the son of David. And then Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, that's King David, calls him, the Messiah, Lord, saying, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. If then David calls the Messiah Lord, how is the Messiah David's son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did they, and did anyone dare ask him any more questions. What is God saying there? He's challenging the Pharisees' view of a Savior and the people's view of a Savior. They thought the Messiah is going to be a king like David, who is going to be a descendant of David, 
who as a human will take over the throne here and will establish what we want here on earth like we want it. Will save us from these oppressors like we want it. We want that kind of a kingdom, but the kingdom of God does not accommodate our view of a savior. Jesus gives this answer of Psalm 110. I wish we had more time, we don't. Psalm 110 is an amazing psalm. It's very short. It was written by David um, and, it, and, it, and it's, it, the depth of it, even in the few verses it has, is astounding. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. That's how important this thing is. And it's important because it shows that, that, that the Messiah, that Christ, is to be prophet, priest, and king. And it makes it clear there. And what Jesus is saying is like, listen, you say the Messiah is going to be from David. Then how come David, when he was being carried by the Spirit and writing Psalm 110, why is it that he called the Messiah his Lord and used it not just in a term of, of oh yeah, I'm going to be under him, but that, that he would be a deity. And that's the point Jesus is making. The, the Messiah, the Christ, is not just a man. It is God himself. That's what shut them up. They didn't know how to answer that because clearly it shows that there in Psalm 110. But that's not the savior they wanted. They wanted a savior of their own design. And again, I know we look at that and go, that's ridiculous. I like the savior that's mentioned in the scriptures. Brothers, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we decide there's certain things we like about the Jesus of the Bible and sometimes there's things we decide we don't like and we're just going to ignore and pass over. And sometimes we're, we're crafting for ourselves what we want. Instead of asking ourselves, hey, am I willing to, to surrender to the Jesus that's described in Scripture? Am I willing to, to accept the Savior as he's been given to us in scripture, revealed in scripture. Because the kingdom of God is not going to accommodate our view of a savior. So let me close with this. In the kingdom, there's no room for our autonomy. <laughs> in the kingdom, there's no room for our politics. In our kingdom, there is no room for our unbelief. In the kingdom, there is no room for our self-justification. In the kingdom, there's no room for our own personal idea of what we want the savior to be for us, what we want him not to be. But brothers, let's close with going back to the first section, that parable, looking at verse 9 and 10. And let's understand clearly as we walk out of here, while there's no room for any of that, brothers, there's room for you and me. Look what it says, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 22. The king says, Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. How beautiful is that? That's us. We're the riffraff that didn't, we're not the Jewish leaders. We're not the, we're not, some of you might be Jewish in here. <laughs> Most of us are Gentiles. Most of us are not Jewish. Most of us, if we were honest about where God found us, we were riffraff. We were out on the roads. 
We were not deserving in any of this. We certainly deserve an invitation to the wedding feast of the king's son. And God brought it to you and brought it to me and said, you come. You come. You come and I'll clothe you with my righteousness. I'll take on the wrath of God and I'll be your savior. The kingdom of God does not have room to accommodate all that junk. But the kingdom of God always has room for you and me. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the beauty and the truth of your word. I pray, Father, that you'd take these things so much that we studied here this morning. I pray that you would sink these things deep into our hearts as only your Holy Spirit can. And as was prayed to begin uh, this morning, that these things would transform us into the image of your Son. Oh, Father, help us to walk out of here in that great freedom, knowing that we, if we have surrendered our lives to you, unconditional surrender, that we are dearly loved sons of God and that you delight in us. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.